Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Persecution of the early church occurred sporadically and localized, usually starting in Jerusalem when Stephen the deacon was martyred under Paul's authority and James the apostle in Acts 12 was beheaded. But all these emperors had had their time to rule and now it was the time for Caesar Nero. He was the grandnephew, the stepson, the son-in-law, and the adopted son of Emperor Claudius, the great-great-grandson of Augustus. His full name, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. And he ruled from 54 AD to 68 AD, right when Paul was writing and traveling on his mission field. He ruled for 13 years, 7 months, and 27 days. Following 13 years of ruling, Nero was declared a public enemy by the Roman Senate, and he committed suicide at age 30 in 68 AD. Now, Paul didn't know too much about this Nero guy yet when he's writing to the Romans, but he'll find out about him. Nero's father died when he was 2 years old. Nero's mother remarried Emperor Claudius the Edict of Claudius. Nero was adopted by his great uncle, the Emperor Claudius, with hopes that he would become his heir and successor, especially by his mother. And in 53 AD, Nero's mother arranged that her son Nero would marry Claudius's daughter Octavia. Interestingly enough, Emperor Claudius died very suddenly the following year, possibly after being fed poisonous mushrooms by Agrippina, Nero's mother. Fearing that his younger stepbrother at age 13 might claim the throne, Nero had his stepbrother murdered. Nero acceded to the throne at age 16 or 17. His coastal resort along the Gulf of Naples was one of his prized indulgences, and he spent a fortune of state money hosting banquets there. Banquets that I can't even tell you about on on air. I read about them. Uh, they, they were quite audacious. Five years into his reign, Nero and his mother became locked in a brutal power struggle, and Nero had Apagrina killed in an elaborate scheme. He had his own mother killed. Within a short time after her death, his mistress, Papea, began to assert her control. Uh, Nero divorced Octavia, who was banished But the public liked Octavia better, and their hatred started growing for Nero and his new mistress. Octavia was a constant threat, so she was exiled even further away to a further away island and beheaded shortly thereafter. And this painting is Nero's second wife, his mistress, bringing the head of Octavia, his first wife, to Nero on a platter. Nero continued to riot through the city of Rome with his drunken friends, beating strangers and assaulting women. Nero competed in the Olympic Games in 67 AD in order to improve relations with Greece. He raced a 10-horse chariot and nearly died after being thrown out of it. On June 9th of 68 AD, at age 30, he committed suicide. His death ended the Julio-Claudian dynasty. But Peter and Paul were both alive during this time under this emperor. And St. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome under Emperor Nero's reign in the years between 64 and 68 AD. St. Paul was beheaded in Rome under the reign of Emperor Nero between 64 and 67 AD. He died in 68, so Paul just missed, missed it. The Great Fire of Rome was a huge urban fire in the city of Rome that took place in 64 AD, Nero watched the blazing fire and 
a Roman historian, Tacitus, writes about it. He's one of Rome's greatest historians, and according to him, Tacitus, and later Christian tradition, Emperor Nero blamed the devastation of the Christian community in the city initiating the empire's first intense persecution against Christians. It was ordered by Caesar Nero. He blamed the fire on the Christians because he wanted space for a new palace. And uh, he was out of the city when the fire raged. Some say he fiddled. He could see it across the river and he fiddled and, and played his harp as Rome burned. We don't know, but we do know that Rome burned and the Christians were persecuted because of it. He writes this, the members of the Christian sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson, but for hatred of the human race. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs. Or they were fastened on crosses and burned. Or when light daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. You can see the Christians wrapped and they dipped them in pitch and fuel and, and lit them on fire as night lights for, for Nero's part, garden parties. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle. He gave an exhibition in his circus, the Circus of Nero. He would mix with the crowd. It was uh, in the habit of a charioteer mounted in his car. And Tactus writes, hence, in the spite of the guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that the Christians were being sacrificed, which means the general populace of Rome started feeling sorry for the Christians when they saw the persecution that Nero was putting them through, and not for the welfare of the state, but for the ferocity of a single man. They knew it was Nero's fault at Nero's hand, but it was too late for St. Peter and St. Paul. It was the blood of these martyrs that seeded the church. Now, Paul in this letter, chapter 13, has a real sense of urgency. He has a real zeal. This is another more recent example of conscience, okay? Conscience over civil authority. I was brought to mind to think about Sir Thomas More. He was a married layman and a public statesman of England, and he married Jane Colt. They had four children, Margaret, Elizabeth, Sicily, and John. And within eight years of getting married, his wife died. With four young children, Thomas More quickly remarried Alice Middleton, and King Henry VIII was crowned, and he knew of Thomas More's fantastic reputation, and he employed him on an international mission trip for Europe. More struggled with this decision to enter into the king's service because he sensed that it was a compromise between what is ideal in any nation state and what could practically be accomplished. In 1521, Moore became the under-treasurer of the exquisure and was knighted. In 1523, he became a speaker of parliament, and in 1924, he was 1524, sorry, he was appointed the high steward of Oxford University, later the same position, the high steward of Cambridge University. During this time, the Protestant Reformation was sweeping across Europe, and Sir Thomas More wrote and spoke convincingly to defend Catholic tradition and answer matters of the faith. So he was a great apologist. And in 1529, Thomas More became the Lord Chancellor of all England. Now, King Henry VIII had once been a sincere Catholic. He had authored a book strongly criticizing Martin Luther and the Reformation movement in Europe. His wife, Catherine of Aragon, had only a single daughter, Mary, that had survived infancy, and Henry wanted a male heir and was determined to divorce his wife and marry Anne Boleyn. And in her great grief, Catherine's most trusted counsel was Bishop John Fisher. Bishop John Fisher led the opposition for the church in the king's effort to divorce Catherine of Aragon. He was the queen's chief supporter and most trusted counselor. He appeared in the queen's behalf in court, and he declared that he, like St. John the Baptist, was ready to die 
die on behalf of the indissolubility of marriage. And his statement enraged the king, and he never forgave John Fisher. In November of 1529, the long parliament of Henry VIII's reign came to a series of encroachments on the Catholic Church. And as a member of the House of Lords, John Fisher warned parliament that Chech acts could only end the utter destruction of the Catholic Church in England. When Pope Clement VII refused to annul King Henry VIII's marriage, King Henry decided to remove the Church of England from the authority of Rome. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy recognized Henry VIII as the only supreme head on earth of the Church in England. Henry declared his marriage to Catherine null and void. Parliament passed the Succession Act, declaring that Henry and his new wife, Anne Boleyn, were the legitimate heirs to the royal throne, and Bishop Fisher refused to acknowledge the Succession Act or to take the oath that the king was the supreme head of the church. And Bishop John Fisher was arrested and sent to the Tower of London in 1534, where he remained a prisoner for more than a year under the most severe conditions. In May of 1535, newly elected Pope Paul III elevated Bishop John Fisher to Cardinal while he was in the Tower of London, hoping to induce Henry VIII to ease the mistreatment of his priest. The act had just the opposite effect. Henry VIII refused to allow the cardinal's hat to be brought to England. He declared that he would send John Fisher's head to Rome instead. Cardinal Fisher was tried as a commoner for treason and his refusal to acknowledge that the king was the supreme head of the Church of England. He was found guilty and condemned to death and beheaded on June 22nd of 1535. Cardinal Fisher met death with a calm, dignified courage which profoundly impressed all present. After beheading, his body was stripped and left on the scaffold until evening when it was thrown naked into a grave in the local churchyard. John Fisher's head was stuck on a pole on London Bridge, but its lifelike appearance drew so much attention that it was thrown into the Thames River. Now, Thomas More greatly admired Cardinal John Fisher. He said, I reckon in this realm, no one man in wisdom, learning, and long-approved virtue together will be matched and compared with him. Thomas More also opposed Henry VIII's separation from the Catholic Church. He refused to acknowledge Henry as supreme head of the Church of England, as well as denying the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Thomas More said his conscience was the supreme guide for him, and he argued for freedom of conscience. This is an example, again, of conscience over civil authority. That kind of independent thinking was far too much for King Henry VIII in 1535, and Sir Thomas More was beheaded for high treason just 14 days after Cardinal John Fisher. When he came to the mount, the steps of the scaffold, its frame seemed weak that it might collapse. Thomas More was widely quoted as saying to one of the officials, I pray you, Master Lieutenant, see me safe up and for my coming. Let me shift for myself. While on the scaffold, he declared that he died the king's good servant and God's first. After More had finished reciting the Miserere, which is Psalm 51, while kneeling, his executioner reportedly begged his pardon, and More rose up merrily, kissed him, and gave him forgiveness. I died the king's good servant and God's first. So both of these men went against civil authority because of conscience. Sir Thomas More was decapitated. His head also was taken to London Bridge. It was displayed there for all to see what happens when you go against King Henry VIII of England. Thomas More's daughter retrieved the head later and was able to get the head to St. Dunstan's in Canterbury where her husband's family had a vault, the Roper family, and his head is still there in Canterbury. His body and that of John Fisher, however, is in the Royal 
Chapel in the Tower of London, uh, Thomas More, Cardinal John Fisher, along with three other wives of King Henry VIII. He had six in all. Pope Pius IX canonized St. Thomas More and St. Cardinal John Fisher as saints and martyrs of the Catholic Church in 1935. Both men share a feast day, June 22nd, the day Fisher was executed. Pope St. Pope John Paul II in 2000 declared St. Thomas More the patron saint of statesmen and politicians. And so we can ask St. Thomas More's intercession for our second Catholic president of the United States, that he has the strength and the courage and the moral conviction of a well-formed conscience like that of St. Thomas More. He really needs our prayers. It's a great responsibility to be the leader of the free world. Another Catholic woman we can pray for is Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Amy Justice Barrett, her faith has been both scrutinized and applauded during the confirmation process to the Supreme Court. Of on which now six Catholics serve. Senator Dianne Feinstein remarked that the dogma lives loudly within her, which uh, I don't know if it was meant as a slam or a compliment, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it's noticed, it's noticed. The dogma lives loudly within you. So we can pray for the intercession of St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher on those politicians. Okay, at the same reason you pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attend to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues, taxes to whom they are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due, says Paul in Romans 13. Just what Jesus said. Jesus was asked a question about paying taxes. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they were trying to entrap him, and Jesus caught it. He perceived it, their craftiness. And he said, show me a coin whose image and likeness, whose, whose inscription is on this? They said Caesar's. And he said, then rend to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, because you are created in God's image and likeness. Give this to Caesar. Give everything else, your whole heart, soul, mind, body to God. Also, when he was being arrested, Jesus did not disobey the civil authorities. They rose to arrest him. They took him to Pilate. We found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. No, he didn't. And Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. And Pilate said, I find no crime in this man. And they said, but he stirs up the people and he teaches all throughout Judea from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard this, oh, he's a Galilean. Oh, I could send him over to Herod's jurisdiction. And he did. When Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. He had long been wanting to, to see him do some sign. And he questioned him at length. But Jesus made no answer to Herod. The chief priests were vehemently accusing him with contempt. And Pilate three times says, I find no harm. He's done nothing wrong. They choose a prisoner, an insurrectionist, and a murderer over Jesus who had broke no civil laws. They want him crucified. Three times he's delivered up to the real. What's the charge? Blasphemy. He said he was the son of God. Well, he he didn't lie. It wasn't blasphemy. He is the son of God. He doesn't go against the civil authority. Same for Paul in Acts 25. He's taken before Governor Festus and on the tribunal, he's, he, Paul is ordered to be brought and they want to bring charges against Paul in Jerusalem. They want him dead. And Paul will plead to go to Rome to be heard by Caesar at his right as a Roman citizen. And uh, he will follow that law. He will appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, you have appealed to Caesar. 
then to Caesar, you shall go. And Paul will finally make it to Rome and he will make it there right when Caesar Nero was in office, right at the same time. But God allowed all this to happen for the greater glory of God. God can take all things and work them together for those who love him. We learned that in Romans 8. But we also know that it was the blood of the martyrs that seated the church. Paul will go on to say in Romans 13, to love one another. He says this in starting at verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just what Jesus said. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul's writing to the Romans in 57 AD from Corinth. He had said something very similar to the Corinthians about love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, all the mysteries, all the knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll all pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect. Our prophecy is imperfect, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall fully understand, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love, abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul figures out towards the end of his life how important love is. Love trumps all. Same with St. John when he was an old man. In 1 John 4, 8, John says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And St. Jerome writes that when age and weakness grew on St. John at Ephesus, so that he was no longer able to preach or to make long discourses to the people, elderly John used to always be carried to the assembly of the faithful by his disciples with great difficulty. And every time John said to his flock only these words, my dear children, love one another. My dear children, love one another. My dear children, love one another. And when his auditors wearied with hearing constantly the same thing, they asked him why he always repeats the same words, my dear children, love one another. And he said, because it is the precept of the Lord. And if you comply with it, you do enough. My dear children, love one another. Because it is the precept of the Lord. And if you comply with it, you do enough. My dear children, love one another. And St. Jerome says, an answer worthy of the great St. John, the favorite disciple of Christ, and which ought to be engraved in characters of gold or rather be written on the heart of every Christian. My dear children, love one another. 
That's enough. John figured it out. Paul figured it out toward the end of their lives. When Jesus was asked by a lawyer that wanted to test him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Love God and love everyone else. Paul in Romans 12 told us the mark of a true Christian is to let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And tonight, owe no one anything except to love one another. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, steal, covet, kill. Any other commandment can all be summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. St. Catherine of Siena, one of only four women doctorates of the church, says everything comes from love. All is ordained for the salvation of man. God does nothing without this goal in mind. By the fire of love, God created us. With joyful and pure hearts, let us return love for love. St. Paul ends this chapter with an urgent appeal. He has a sense of urgency, great importance, requiring swift action. What is it? We say it every Sunday in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is coming back. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. Paul knew it. He told the Thessalonians concerning the times, the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Matthew tells us, and these are Jesus's own words, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels or heaven or the son, but only the father knows. Therefore, you must always be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Paul is making a last urgent appeal to the Roman Christians. And he says this, besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is full time now for you to wake from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first began. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not reveling in drunkenness, not in debauchery or licentiousness, not in quarreling or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now we all know that Paul had a very powerful conversion when he heard the word of the Lord on the road to Damascus. Paul was long dead and buried when over 350 years later, someone read the word of the Lord in one of Paul's letters. It was St. Augustine, and his heart was set aflame when he was reading this passage in Romans 13. It was on August of 386 AD. He was 31 years old, and he was prompted when he heard children in the garden doing a ring around the rosy and saying, take up and read, take up and read. He was a sinner. His life was a shambles. We can read his own account in his confessions. He was a thief, he said. He was 16 years old. He and his scoundrel friends used to steal pears off the neighbor's tree and throw them to hogs. He didn't do it because he was hungry. He didn't eat the pears. It was thievery for the pure sake of thievery. He wrote that 
throwing all the pears away pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. For Augustine, this was the first taste of the dark side of a series of escalating vices in his life. He became a real playboy as a teenager. He obsessed over girls to a whole new level. He was 16 when he writes, the frenzy gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust. The condition grew within him. He continued to battle his out-of-control sexual appetite all the way into his 30s. And as a university student, he moved in with a woman, and although their relationship continued for almost a decade, he did not marry her. Augustine fathered a child out of wedlock. His decision to not marry his mistress got even more difficult to excuse when she revealed that she became the mother of his own son, Adodatus. He kept the two with him in his burgeoning career, took him to Rome. He still refused to commit to marriage. His mistress eventually made the difficult choice and left him. Augustine writes that she was stronger than I. The jolt of being left by the mother of his child got Augustine to finally attempt to straighten out the mess of his love life and to marry. Uh, he, he arranged a marriage with a young woman, but she was a minor. So young, that she had to wait two years to be of marriageable age. In the meantime, Augustine got impatient. He lost his nerve and took another mistress. And he writes that he was impatient of the delay. He was a slave to lust. At that point, he was feeling desperate. He had lost the ability to distinguish physical desire from actual love. Of course, it broke his mother's heart. Monica prayed and prayed and prayed. She knew that Augustine lived a life of debauchery, that his actions hurt others around him, including her. She was brokenhearted, wondering how she had raised such a reckless son. Unable to control him, she begged Augustine to at least not seduce married women. And in August of 386, at the age of 31, Augustine's conversion was prompted by hearing these children's voices at play, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. He opened the scripture scroll to Romans chapter 13, and he read, you know what hour it is. Augustine, now is the full time now for you to wake up from your slumber, Augustine. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night's far gone, the days at hand. Put off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Conduct yourself becomingly as in the day, not reveling in drunkenness, in debauchery, in licentiousness, in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the fle- for your flesh to gratify its desires and the power of the gospel. Paul, St. Paul's words to the Romans seared Augustine's heart like an arrow. Put on the armor of light, Augustine. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for your flesh. Don't gratify its desires anymore. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard it. The spirit penetrated his heart by the power of God's word. His heart was set aflame. He put on the armor of light as Paul had done on the road to Damascus. The power of God's word sent Saul on mission. The power of God's word would send Augustine on mission. His life was changed. And that same power of God's word is what sends us on mission. When we end the mass, the deacon says, go in peace, or he can say, go forth. The mass is ended. Or he can say, go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Or he can say, go and announce the gospel of the Lord. And we all say, thanks, be to God. We can do that because we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for your word tonight. And we ask that we would put you on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be our garment of salvation. The one we put on as a baby in baptism, the one we put on in confirmation. Would you allow us to wear you, Jesus, to be your fragrance, to be your hands and your and your feet and your eyes and your ears to all we meet, that we would take that power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit who authored the gospel, and, and that we would take it out to the world. We praise and thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you for St. Paul, the sacrifice of his life, and all the saints and martyrs. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.